If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Weirdo family member Kitty sent me an email saying, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his MyPillow with him. That's how much he loves his. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com. Promo code WEIRD. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. In one area, a man who saw the flames coming toward him cut his throat rather than be burned to death. He was rescued before the fire reached him, but he soon died of his injuries. In another section, very near to where the fire started, rescuers had nearly succeeded in freeing a woman where the fire swept through. She had survived the collapse, only to be consumed by the fire. As the fire spread, rescue volunteers, firemen, friends, and family were forced back by the extreme heat. Fire crews poured a steady stream of water on the burning section, seeking to halt the spread of flames while rescues continued on the other side. But it was a losing battle. The fire soon spread across the entire ruin, and the terrified screams of those still trapped inside were quickly silenced, with only the sounds of the fire remaining. Fourteen people were known to have burned to death in the sight of their friends and families. Welcome, Weirdos. I'm Darren Moiler, and this is a special archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. As I mentioned, it is an archive episode, so I'll be bringing in stories from last year to share with you today. I'm dealing with a bit of vertigo today, something that I actually deal with quite often, but I didn't want to skip entirely posting an episode because we are so close to our goal for our Battle the Darkness fundraiser. We're currently at $1,690 towards our $2,000 goal so we only have $310 to raise before the end of Wednesday, Halloween. This is our anniversary month here at Weird Darkness, so instead of asking you to become a patron or purchase audiobooks, I'm just asking you to help me raise funds for depression and suicide prevention. We all know somebody who suffers depression or who has thought about or even tried to commit suicide. I have received so many emails, reviews, messages from people thanking us for doing this fundraiser. And I can't do it without you. You are part of the fundraiser. I may have started it, 
but I can't make it happen without your help, and you definitely have been helping, so thank you. If you've been thinking about making a donation and just haven't done it yet, now would be the perfect time. Go to WeirdDarkness.com battle and you can make your donation right now. That's WeirdDarkness.com battle or you can click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com. I also have a link in the show notes. And a quick reminder, Halloween is coming up and our very first Weird Darkness live scream is taking place October 31st live on YouTube. I'll be narrating stories as usual, but it will be in real time, on camera, me outside with trick-or-treaters passing by, so long as the weather holds out and so long as my health cooperates with me. So be sure to subscribe to the channel. That's my YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash marlerhouse. That's youtube.com slash marlerhouse. I do have a link to that in the show notes as well. The Weird Darkness live scream. It begins October 31st, 5 p.m. Central Time. That's 6 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Mountain, 3 p.m. Pacific. And when you do subscribe, be sure to click the notification bell so that way you'll be notified when the live stream begins. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. The ghost of a man in gray haunts a London theater. The Boogeyman. Where did he come from, and is he based on a real person? A disaster that took place at the Pemberton Mill on January 10, 1860. A disaster that left a community and a nation stunned. A night of children telling scary stories to each other turns into the real thing. A young girl bumps into her father in the hallway which is impossible, as her father isn't home. James Bond, 007 himself, tells his own personal story of the paranormal. Sir Roger Moore tells of his terrifying experience. A young teen girl wakes up in the dark of night, being choked by a red-eyed being. Friends hear a crash in the kitchen and though everything appears normal, what they eventually find is the stuff of nightmares. And the discovery of a body in the local river leaves one town with a gruesome mystery, and possibly the framing of an innocent man for the murder. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. The Drury Lane Theatre in London is possibly the most haunted theatre in the UK. The most famous ghost is the one called the Man in Grey. He appears in full costume, wearing a tri-cornered hat, a powdered wig, and a long grey cloak with the hilt of a sword protruding from it. He is said to be the ghost of a man whose skeletal remains were found in 1848. A knife had penetrated his long gray cloak and was still embedded in his ribcage. He always appears during the daytime, 
to actors when they are rehearsing. He is thought to be a recordings ghost, as he is always seen in the same place, walking quietly in the same direction. His ghostly visitations are thought to be lucky, but the plays performed after his appearance always do well at the box office. During renovation work at the theater in the late 1970s, builders found a buried skeleton clad in the remains of a gray riding coat and a knife sticking out of its ribs. It is believed this may be the remains of the young man, for whom a body was never located. Another ghost reported at the theater described as tall, thin, and ugly is thought to be the ghost of a grumpy actor named Charles Macklin. In 1735, Charles killed his fellow actor Thomas Hallam in an argument over a wig. He thrust his cane through Hallam's left eye into his brain. Macklin has often been seen backstage, wandering the corridor where the murder was committed. The ghost of comedian Joe McGraldy, who gave his farewell performance at Drury Lane, is a rather helpful apparition that is often felt rather than seen. He is said to guide nervous actors gently about the stage. In 1948, a young American actress named Betty Jo Jones was performing badly during a run of Oklahoma. Then, as she describes it, she felt invisible hands guiding her into a different position on the stage. They continued to guide her around the stage during the rest of the performance. Her performance was later described as flawless. Also seen on stage were the ghosts of King Charles II and a crowd of his attendants. Another young actress named Doreen Duke felt the same invisible hands while trying out for a part in The King and I. She got the part, hands down. She believed that Joe Grimaldi's ghost was helping her here. The comedian Stanley Lupino was in his dressing room applying his makeup when, looking in the mirror, along with his own reflection, he saw another face looking back at him. It was the face of Dan Leno, another comedian who had died recently. Lupino was told that he was using Leno's favorite dressing room. A woman in the audience saw what was probably a ghost watching the play that was being performed. She described this apparition as a man wearing old-fashioned clothes sitting at the end of the row where I was sitting. When the lights went up, the man was gone. Later, whilst perusing a book on the history of the theater, she saw a picture of Charles Keene, a 19th century actor. She instantly recognized him as the ghost that she had seen earlier. Considering all these reports of hauntings, you could say that the Drury Lane Theater is where actors, both past and present, take center stage. No exploration into the world of urban legends 
would be complete without a look at the one that started them all, the boogeyman. He exists everywhere and nowhere. He's under the bed, hiding in the closet or waiting just outside the window for parents to leave the room so he can feast on their fat, juicy children. The boogeyman legend is as old as time. In every corner of the globe and in nearly every culture, there is some version of the boogeyman. He is eternal. He is that thing in the darkness that we dare not speak of. He is your worst nightmare come to life. It is nearly impossible to say for sure when and where the boogeyman originated. He was surely conjured up as a tool to get children to mind their parents or else the boogeyman would get them. Many a parent has used this legend when all else fails. Don't stay out past your curfew or the boogeyman will be waiting for you, they will say. Or do as I say or I'll sick the boogeyman on you. So who is the boogeyman? He is whatever scares you the most. If you're frightened of demons, that's who he is for you. If bears terrify you, he will come to you in the form of a bear. The worst thing your mind can conjure is exactly how he will appear to you. Sometimes the boogeyman is just a dark shape passing through a room. At other times, he is eyes that stare out from a crack in a closet door. Every kid knows that the boogeyman can be anywhere. That is why you have to keep the covers pulled up around your neck, and whatever you do, don't let your legs dangle off the side of the bed. That's just asking for the boogeyman to drag you off to someplace far away where no one will hear your screams. As scary as all of the boogeyman stories are, they are just fantasy, at least up to a point. There have certainly been many cases over the years of real-life boogeymen who have done things more terrifying than any make-believe monster ever could. One of those monsters was a man named Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells was executed by the state of Texas in 2014 for the brutal murder of 13-year-old Kayleen Harris. He was every parent's worst nightmare, a devil in human form who preyed upon the most innocent of victims. Sells was thought to have been responsible for the murders of at least 22 men, women, and children. It wasn't until the attack on young Kayleen and her friend Crystal Surlis that Sells' reign of terror finally ended. The killer had been an acquaintance of Kayleen's parents. When they met him at a community church event, he was down on his luck and, being good people, they tried to help him in any way they could. They couldn't know that their kindness would be repaid with more heartache than they imagined possible. It was on New Year's Eve, 1999, that the family saw what the real Tommy Lynn Sells was capable of. As Kayleen and Crystal were sleeping peacefully in Kayleen's bunk beds, Sells crept into the room and began to viciously attack the 13-year-old. Awakened by the violence taking place in the bed below hers, 10-year-old Crystal watched 
helplessly as her friend was stabbed multiple times. When Sells was finished with Kayleen, he turned his attention to Crystal, slicing the child across the throat. Thinking that both girls were dead, Sells fled the scene. Young Crystal, though critically wounded, managed to escape from the home and make it to a neighbor's house. They immediately called police and the search for the maniac who attacked the girls was set into motion. Kayleen did not survive the horrifying attack, but Crystal did, and she remembered everything. With her help, a forensic artist was able to draw a sketch of what the killer looked like. Before long, authorities had their man, one Tommy Lynn Sells. Sells admitted to killing Kayleen and attempting to murder Crystal. He didn't stop there. He confessed to murders all over the country as well as other unspeakable crimes. He was the devil incarnate for anyone unfortunate enough to encounter him when he was on a crime spree. Still recovering from the injuries that had nearly killed her, Crystal testified against Sells at his murder trial. He was convicted of the murder of Kayleen and the attempted murder of Crystal. He received the ultimate punishment, death by lethal injection. Crystal's nightmare was finally over. This boogeyman would never hurt her or anyone else ever again. There are also boogeymen who are the products of the worldwide communication highway, the internet. The most famous or infamous of those has to be Slender Man. Slender Man began innocently enough as an internet meme. Not long after his creation, various websites started inviting users to send in their own Slender Man stories. People from all over the world began to make up scary tales about Slender Man. In many of the fictionalized accounts, Slender Man was a nameless, faceless entity who stalked and sometimes murdered unsuspecting victims. He was usually portrayed as very tall and thin with abnormally long limbs. Video games and even film shorts have been developed with Slender Man as their central character. He has become a phenomenon very popular with teens and adults alike. As with anything that becomes as well-known as Slender Man, some people took it too seriously, with dire consequences. In May of 2014, two 12-year-old girls in Wisconsin invited a mutual friend over for a sleepover. The friend had spent time at the home of one of the girls before, and they were good friends. She had no reason to think that this night would be any different. She couldn't have been more wrong. The two girls who had suggested the sleepover had a plan. They were going to isolate the third girl and then, when the time was right, kill her. They weren't angry with the girl. In fact, they had no problems with her whatsoever. Allegedly, they wanted to kill their friend to prove to Slender Man that they were worthy to be his disciples. The girls had followed the exploits of Slender Man online and believed him to be real. 
They thought that he lived in the woods somewhere close by. They intended to murder their friend and then find his house so they could reveal to him what they had done. Once the two girls had the third girl alone, one of them is said to have held her down while the other one stabbed her. Thinking they had accomplished their mission, they left the girl's body in the woods and set out looking for Slenderman. A passing bicyclist happened upon the girl who had been so brutally attacked by those she thought were her friends. The girl had been stabbed over a dozen times, but she was still alive and was even able to identify her assailants. The two would-be killers were quickly apprehended. Their alleged victim is still recovering both physically and emotionally from what happened to her that day when her friends turned on her, and all for a boogeyman who existed only in their minds. The boogeyman of the past is a creature from the land of make-believe whose original purpose was to get kids to walk the straight and narrow and mind their elders. That doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of things that go bump in the night to be fearful of, like the cold-blooded killer who unleashed his rage on two young girls one dark Texas night. Boogeymen are all around us. Usually, we don't even realize how close we've come to danger until it has already passed us by. The next time you feel a shiver for no reason or goose flesh suddenly appears on your arms, that might just be something trying to tell you that evil is closer than you think. With so many weirdos sending in their own stories for Weird Darkness, I know I've got a lot of right-brained creative weirdos listening. Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorrance Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life, but if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it. And if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Helpline is there for you right now, no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you, but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. 
they can help you find a way off that dark path you're on in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All too often, we hear about an accident or event somewhere that resulted in almost unimaginable tragedy and loss of life. Yet there are even more stories where an accident occurs but tragedy is averted by the slimmest chance. In those cases, there remains that haunting codicil, what if? What if it happened 15 minutes earlier or 15 minutes later? What if it had been a weekday or what if it had been a weekend? We hear of an elementary school that was struck by a tornado just minutes after the last child had left for the day, or a church that was flattened an hour before it would have been full for Sunday services, or the mine explosion on a holiday that kept many miners at home. There is the train that falls into a ravine shortly after most of the passengers have disembarked. How many times have you heard of a natural gas leak causing a house to explode, but no one was home at the time? The disaster that took place at the Pemberton Mill on January 10, 1860 was truly such a tragedy that fits into each of these categories, but with a twist. There occurred a terrible disaster that resulted in an impossibly small loss of life, followed by a second disaster that left a community and a nation stunned. Lawrence, Massachusetts was a city founded to promote the growing textile industry. The land that was to become the site for the new city was purchased in 1845 by a group of Boston industrialists with the intention of bringing in textile mills. The location was perfect for this purpose. It was on the Merrimack River, a great amount of water was required to run the mills. It was just a short train ride from Boston, and it was downriver from Lowell. The city of Lowell had been founded 20 years earlier and was already the largest textile producer in the U.S. The Boston investors were certain that they could capitalize on the growing demand for manufactured textiles and the already established industries in the area. There was another advantage to the location, a huge labor force that was ready, willing, and able. For years, men had been traveling to Europe encouraging immigration to the New England states by guaranteeing employment and housing. As ships arrived in New York and Boston harbors, 
there were wagons waiting to take the immigrants straight to the textile mills. In some cases, these newcomers to America's shores were on a ship one day and operating a loom the next. Their ranks included men, women, and children. It was a sad fact that children as young as eight years old were employed in the mills. The new city, to be named Lawrence after Congressman Abbott Lawrence, one of the initial investors, would simply tap into the already established pipeline of workers. Unbeknownst to the mill owners, they were about to get a great boom in the labor market. The Great Famine, better known in America as the Irish Potato Famine, was a time of mass starvation and disease in Ireland. Between 1845 and 1852, over a million Irish people died and another million immigrated mainly to the U.S., where jobs awaited them in the textile mills. The Boston inventors were exactly correct in their plans. Lawrence did indeed become a major player in textiles. The city was incorporated in 1853, and within a few years, several very large mills had been built and work was underway. Several tenements had been built along with the mills since the city was brand new and the factory workers would need housing as soon as they arrived so they could get right to work. It all seemed too good to be true. Business was booming and by 1860, only seven years after it was founded, Lawrence had a population of over 17,000. It had been nicknamed Immigrant City employing workers from almost every country in Europe and French Canadians as well. The dreams of the Boston investors had come true in ways they probably hadn't dared to imagine, but not so for the immigrants. True, they had received what they had been promised, but it wasn't really what they had expected. Almost anyone who wanted a job could easily get one. The mills needed as many unskilled workers as they did those with specialized training, they worked 65 hours per week, and the vast majority of workers, called operatives, earned about 40 cents a day, for a total of about $2 per week. At those wages, a head of household couldn't possibly earn enough to support his or her family, so entire families had to work in the mills. The single largest group in the textile labor force was women, and usually young women. The largest employer in Lawrence was the American Woolen Company. Over half of their operatives were girls between 14 and 18. Many children accompanied their parents and older siblings into the mills, some as young as eight, but most companies shied away from hiring children that young, preferring to wait till they were at least 10. Women and children could do much of the work, and it was expected that they would be paid less than the men. It was a sound business practice for increasing profits. Housing was another one of the promises made to immigrants when they were being enticed to come and work. This promise, too, was kept, though again, very likely not as the immigrants envisioned. Lawrence operatives and their families lived in overcrowded and dangerous tenement buildings. Frequently, several families had to share a single apartment as wages were low and rent was high. It was the only way they could afford to keep a roof over their heads. Food was expensive, too. The main staples were bread, molasses, and beans. Meat was costly and was usually reserved for holidays. 
The working and living conditions did not allow for a healthy workforce. The mills were terribly dangerous, especially for the children. It was not unheard of for an operative to be terribly injured, perhaps losing a hand or arm in a loom. The procedure was to escort the injured outside, where they would wait, in hopes that they did not bleed to death, until a friend or family member would find them and take them home. Workplace injuries, along with disease and malnutrition, took a very high toll. A child in Lawrence or one of the other mill towns had only a 50% chance of surviving past the age of six. Life expectancy wasn't much better for the adults. Of those who worked in a textile mill, 36 out of every 100 men and women died before reaching the ripe old age of 25. In 1853, John Lowell and his brother-in-law, J. Pickering Putnam, decided to go into the textile business. They hired an engineer named Charles H. Bigelow to construct a large building that would house the most modern textile equipment available. Their new Pemberton Mill, a cotton-spinning mill, met their expectations and then some. The building was five stories high with a basement and measured 280 feet long and 84 feet wide giving them roughly 141,000 square feet of workspace. The building and equipment cost a previously unheard of amount of $850,000. Several hundred operatives were hired and Lowell and Putnam were in business. After only four years, Lowell and Putnam lost their nerve during a financial panic in 1857. They sold Pemberton Mill to George Howe and David Nevins Sr., for a substantial loss. The new owners moved in more equipment and hired more operatives to increase the output. The mill operated with great success and earned the owners an average of $1.5 million each year. The building was so packed with machines and workers that it was said to vibrate with energy. Based on what was to come, that vibration was more than likely literal rather than figurative as over 1,000 people toiled there, running 2,700 spindles and 700 looms. The industrial area where the Pemberton Mill was located had several working textile mills situated side-by-side side along the Merrimack River. There were thousands of operatives going to and from work at the same times each day. The area was terribly congested with buildings and people and buildings filled with people. Looking back, it was a disaster waiting to happen. And so it was. On Tuesday, January 10, 1860, at a few minutes before five in the afternoon, there were many people on hand to witness what was to be the single worst industrial accident in Massachusetts and one of the worst in U.S. history. People outside and inside the Pemberton Mill building were startled when, as described in American Heritage magazine, suddenly there was a sharp rattle and then a prolonged, deafening crash. A section of the building's brick wall seemed to bulge out and explode, and then, literally in seconds, the Pemberton collapsed. Tons of machinery crashed down through the crumpling floors, dragging trapped, screaming victims along in their downward path. 
The factory was a heap of twisted iron, splintered beams, pulverized bricks, and agonized, imprisoned human flesh. Workers from neighboring mills could do nothing but watch in horror and disbelief as the entire Pemberton building, all five stories, collapsed before their eyes. The air was rent by screams of the operatives trapped inside the ruins. Where there was once a huge industrial building was now a pile of rubble under a huge plume of dust. Nothing remained except a section of an exterior rear wall. Everything else was gone, reduced to a massive pile of rubble. Cries for help filled the air as workers in nearby mills rushed to the scene. Somewhere between 800 and 900 people had been in the building when it collapsed. To the utter amazement of the witnesses, living, breathing people began crawling out of the rubble. A few hundred people were either unhurt or had only minor injuries and were able to pull themselves from the wreckage. With a catastrophic event that should have meant certain death for almost everyone in the building, there were survivors, many survivors. In fact, other than a few dozen who had died instantly, almost everyone in the building survived the collapse, even after falling several stories as the floors fell from beneath their feet. Iron columns had crumbled, massive beams had been splintered, and many tons of brick and mortar lay in heaps, but somehow many, many people were still alive. Witnesses believed it was nothing short of a miracle. As the dust began to settle, more than 600 workers were still held captive in the tangled, twisted ruins. Some were merely trapped. Some had minor or at least survivable wounds, and still others were still breathing but had sustained substantial injuries. George Howe, one of the owners, had escaped as the structure was falling. His partner David Nevins was away from the building when it fell. Apparently, the large and heavy machinery inside the building that had helped cause the collapse also helped protect the workers inside. Those who were able to avoid being crushed by the falling machines were, in turn, protected by them as they created safe pockets of space while holding up the timbers and other debris. In some cases, as many as 25 people survived by huddling in the same protected space. One woman who was standing near a window along the wall that remained standing became so frightened that she threw her bonnet and shawl out the window and then jumped out herself. She soon died from injuries sustained from her dramatic leap. While many people were able to free themselves from the wreckage, it took Herculean efforts to free others. Workers from nearby mills and the surrounding community ran to the aid of the victims. Every able-bodied person pitched in, working at a breakneck pace to free trapped people as quickly as they could. Friends and family members arrived on the scene and began a frantic search for their loved ones. A general alarm had gone out to the Lawrence Fire Department and to those in the surrounding towns. When the firefighters arrived, they climbed down and went to work with the rescue effort. There were many tales of daring escapes, remarkable rescues, and unbelievable recoveries. A group of men heard a young girl screaming and crying for help. She was found covered by at least 10 feet of rubble and debris. After working to remove the twisted mass from on top of her, the rescuers were shocked when the girl jumped up, unhurt and smiling, 
thanked them for freeing her and ran off to find her family. In another part of the ruins, a family of five was released from their tomb unharmed when a large section of floor was lifted from above them. They climbed from the hole, the terrified mother scooped her children to her and, praising their rescuers, cried out a prayer of thanks. Another miraculous escape was that of Selena Weeks. Miss Weeks had been working in the fifth-floor spool room and dropped with it when the building fell. As she regained her senses, she realized that she was still standing on the spool room floor, but was waist-deep in debris. She was able to dig her way out and made her way home unharmed. At the same time that Miss Weeks fell from the top floor, Damon Wyham was working in the basement. He found himself completely buried under a dozen feet of debris. After repeated tries, he was able to tunnel his way to an area where rescuers could reach him and he was pulled to safety. A small boy who was working on one of the upper floors realized what was happening when he heard the crashes. He jumped into a trash can and rode down with the floor, becoming buried under several feet of wreckage. When rescuers lifted the material from what contemporary reports described as his safety capsule, he jumped out and walked away as if nothing had happened. Three young sisters with the appropriate surname of Luck all survived. Jane Luck was buried for nearly five hours but was released unharmed. Her sister Anna Luck heard the crashing as the building collapsed and dove under her loom. She called to her other sister and friend to do the same. All three of the girls survived. Not all of the Luck family was as lucky. The girls' two uncles, who were working in the mill, were killed. Thomas Watson was on the fifth floor when it fell. His jaw was broken in three places and he sustained three broken ribs and several deep cuts. Despite his injuries, he climbed out from the rubble unaided. He noticed to his surprise that he had not felt any pain until he was walking about free. His wife also worked at the mill, but that day she had stayed home for the first time since she had started work six months before. It so happened that Watson was to leave on a trip the next day and she had stayed home to prepare his traveling clothes and pack his things. The child was found pinned under a large iron pillar by a rescue team lying next to a woman. The following is a contemporary description of the dramatic events that followed. On Tuesday evening, while 2,000 men were exerting every energy in rescuing the survivors from their living sepulchers and the dead from the rubbish which buried them, a party came upon the body of a little girl. She lay apparently crushed beneath a ponderous block of iron weighing over a thousand pounds and which covered her body to the chin. Her back was pressed against a huge timber. One of her arms was thrust to the elbow through a ring in a piece of machinery, and she was completely wedged in by heavy iron gearing. Intent only on preserving her features and form as little disfigured as possible, the men labored carefully to remove the block of iron without crushing her still further. Four of them tugged upon it and succeeded in loosening it. The other rubbish was then removed and the body taken out when, what was the surprise and joy of the men to find that they had rescued a living girl instead of a corpse, and more, that her injuries were not fatal but comparatively trifling. The heavy iron 
had met with some more powerful obstruction than her body, and her life was spared as if by a miracle. The body of the woman lying next to her was extricated from the ruins by her friends and relatives. The bricks and iron had buried her so tightly that there were no hopes of her survival. When her body was at last drawn out, the circle of friends found their worst fears confirmed. Her husband took her carefully in his arms and bore her toward his home. A number of relatives were there waiting. Suddenly, the woman revived and, throwing up her hand, cried out, I'm safe, I'm safe. She was received as one risen from the dead. Henry Niece was both victim and hero. He was working in the boiler room when the building fell. As rubble began to fall on him, he rushed for the door and fell out onto the porch where debris piled onto him. After being nearly suffocated by a cloud of steam and dust, he was able to burrow through to safety, but instead of leaving, he began a search of the area. He found a young girl whose arms and legs were injured, pinned to the floor by a beam across her neck. He found a saw and cut her free, passing her off to a rescue team as he continued to search for survivors. Then he located a friend of his, lying over a young woman who was pinned under a mass of wreckage. The woman urged Nice to free the man first, as she was not as badly injured. After the man was removed, a team worked feverishly trying to remove a heavy piece of machinery from over her, but they were unable to free her. They planned to come back later with tools, but after the second disaster of the night befell them, she was killed where she lay. In another area, a man named Adams was trapped in the basement by several heavy beams. Because of the precarious position of the beams relative to where he was trapped, rescuers were unable to reach him, but instead passed him an axe and a saw. With these tools, he was able to cut and chop his way to freedom. Dramatic rescue efforts continued throughout the site, with person after person being pulled from the wreckage. The Lawrence City Hall had been prepared for double duty as a makeshift morgue and as a hospital. As the dead were removed, they were carefully carried to the dead room. When the injured were removed, they were taken to the hospital room in the same building. It was a cold January day, but the rescuers stayed warm with exertion. Soon it began to grow dark and colder. Large bonfires were built in a circle around the collapsed building to provide light for the rescuers as they continued their search into the darkness. At about 9.30 that night, after four and a half hours and hundreds of people freed from the wreckage, someone either kicked over or dropped an oil lamp. The burning fluid quickly spread to a pile of debris. The flames shot across the splintered wood and wads of cotton, some soaked with oil, and quickly ignited the ruins of the building where many trapped but living people were waiting to be released. The second disaster of the day had begun. In one area, a man who saw the flames coming toward him cut his throat rather than be burned to death. He was rescued before the fire reached him, but he soon died of his injuries. In another section, very near to where the fire started, rescuers had nearly succeeded in freeing a woman where the fire swept through. 
she had survived the collapse, only to be consumed by the fire. As the fire spread, rescue volunteers, firemen, friends, and family were forced back by the extreme heat. Fire crews poured a steady stream of water on the burning section, seeking to halt the spread of flames while rescues continued on the other side. But it was a losing battle. The fire soon spread across the entire ruin, and the terrified screams of those still trapped inside were quickly silenced, with only the sounds of the fire remaining. Fourteen people were known to have burned to death in the sight of their friends and families. The fire burned long and hot, raging through the night and into the next day, Wednesday, January 11th. There was little that anyone could do but stand back and watch. Anyone who'd been left alive after the collapse was now dead, ravaged by fire. By evening, the fire had mostly burned itself out, but too much heat was radiating from the wreckage for anyone to approach. During the day on Wednesday, a crowd had begun to form. Flocks of people from other towns and cities, including Boston, began arriving by train. They filled every available inch of space they could find, filling the streets and lining the bridge over the Merrimack. They had come to see the wreckage of the once thriving factory. They wanted to be a part of history, to be able to say that they had been there to see what was left after the great building had collapsed. As the day drew on, a light rain had begun to fall, later turning to snow. The Pemberton Mill Company took over the ruins. From here on, company men would be directing the efforts as rescue had become recovery. By 10 o'clock Thursday morning, January 12, the fire was almost completely out, but smoke continued to bellow up from deep inside the rubble. The firefighters continued to pour streams of water where they saw smoke. It was still too hot to enter the wreckage, so recovery efforts had to be put off another day. The smoke and cold didn't seem to deter the crowds of the morbidly curious. They would have to wait another day to see flesh and bone released from the ashes. As snow continued to fall, it drifted down through the burned-out beams and machinery, falling gently onto the upraised faces of charred corpses who patiently waited to be released from their tomb and taken to their families. On Friday morning, January 13, the pit had cooled enough for the recovery efforts to continue. Derricks were set up around the ruin to help lift and remove heavy machinery and debris. Victims were once again being removed, but this time none were among the living. The recovery was now more dangerous, but the 100 men working there were determined that no one would be left in that miserable pit. The crowd continued to look on, but a few of the men left the safety of the road and stepped inside the perimeter, adding themselves to the recovery operation. At one point, as groups of two and three worked their way through the wreckage, a man remembered where he had seen a young woman named Kate Cooney partially buried. She had been struck by a beam and her legs were pinned under her so she couldn't move. It had been just before the fire found her that he had heard her cries for help. The men dug in the area the man indicated and they soon came upon her body. She had been badly burned about her head and neck and her arms had been burned off up to her elbows, but her lower body was relatively untouched 
Her skirt and apron were not even scorched. Thirteen more bodies were pulled out on Saturday the 14th. As before, some were only partially burned, some were completely charred, and others were found with only portions of limbs remaining to indicate that a human body had once lain in that spot. As darkness approached, the men stopped working as they did not want to further mutilate by accident any bodies they might find in the darkness. They made every effort to get everybody identified and returned to the people who loved them. On Sunday the 15th, over 150 men arrived for work at sunrise and the search continued. They did not wish to cause any more grief than was absolutely necessary for the families that were still waiting for someone to be pulled out of the rubble. They chose to work through their one day of rest. On January 20, ten days after the building had collapsed, the last bodies were recovered from the debris. These bodies were completely unrecognizable. They were taken to the dead room at the city hall even though no one there would be able to claim them. In the end, 13 bodies had been charred and mutilated beyond any possibility of identification. A little more than two months after the disaster, the city purchased a plot in Lawrence's Bellevue Cemetery and on Sunday, March 4, 1869, funeral services were held and the remains of the unknown workers were laid to rest. Later, a monument was placed at the head of the plot in memory of all who lost their lives in Pemberton Mill. The crowds remained at the disaster site for many days after the last body had been removed. It was as if they just couldn't move on. Soon, people began to wander onto the site and started sifting through the debris, searching for relics or mementos of the disaster. A man from St. Louis collected a large bundle of grisly souvenirs that included burned clothing from some of the victims. Two New Yorkers collected pieces of broken bricks and splinters of burned beams. The ferocity with which the relic seekers went about their business was becoming a hazard to the cleanup crews and the intruders alike. Eventually, realizing it had to stop, the mayor and the company gave orders for it to stop and hired men to guard the ruins. Eventually, the crowds dispersed and went home. Calls went out across the country for financial assistance. The New England Society of Manufacturers collected a total of $19,000 and handed it over to Mayor Daniel Saunders. Boston clubs and societies brought in another $9,000. Churches, schools, and fraternal organizations collected donations from around the country, raising the total of $65,579.29. Mayor Saunders put together a committee to determine how best to use the money to assist the victims. Hearings were held to investigate the cause of the collapse and to determine fault. After several days of testimony, the blame was laid at the door of engineer Charles Bigelow. The primary problems with the building lay in faulty or otherwise substandard materials. The iron pillars that had been put in place to support the heavy machinery were found to be brittle and badly cast. In a moment of stress, they had crumbled. It was also determined that the mortar used with the bricks was extremely poor and was completely ineffective at holding the brick joints together. The committee felt that the use of appropriate materials and construction systems should have been Bigelow's responsibility 
and that his design must somehow be at fault as well. The committee failed to take into account that most of the other mill buildings in Lawrence had also been designed and built by Bigelow. They also ignored the fact that the mill's second owners had severely overloaded the structure, well beyond its design limits. No blame was assigned to the owners, since they obviously had purchased a faulty building without knowledge of its shortcomings. Some of the final statistics were startling. Women and girls made up 62% of the mill's workforce, but they made up 73% of the dead and missing, and 67% of the injured, leaving questions of how these proportions became so out of balance. After the dead and the living had been counted, and counted again, it was believed that of the 1,003 employees at the Pemberton Mill, between 99 and 145 people lost their lives in the disaster. The best estimate as to those injured is 302. All of these numbers are horrifying and unfortunate, but the most remarkable thing of all is that while a five-story building suffered a catastrophic collapse into rubble in a matter of seconds, nearly 600 people either climbed out or were pulled free of the wreckage without injury and were able to walk home on their own. After all the bodies had been recovered, the company called in those who were unemployed as a result of the disaster and hired them to work on the cleanup crews. When all the wreckage had been removed, the owners rebuilt a new mill on the old foundation and reopened for business. For a long time after the second Pemberton Mill was opened, workers reported seeing people they didn't recognize walking through a room or down an aisle. The employee might turn a corner and catch a glimpse of a mysterious person wearing old-fashioned clothes who suddenly vanished. It didn't take long for the living workers to suspect that they were sharing their workspace with people who were long since dead. Over time, fewer and fewer people spoke about seeing these spectral workers in the mill. It is impossible to determine if they were appearing less frequently or if the living had grown so accustomed to their ethereal comrades that they no longer noticed when they were around. The mill has long been closed down, but the building still stands on the bank of the Merrimack River. There is talk of turning it into loft-style condominiums or possibly a shopping center. It will be interesting to see if any of the future occupants of the old Pemberton Mill building turn a corner one day and come face to face with a woman in a floor-length skirt and long apron looking for her machine in order to spin cotton into yet another century. This will be the first time I have submitted a paranormal story of any kind to a website. Several strange things have happened to me during my life. This was the first incident. It took place when I was around six or seven years old. We lived in the middle of nowhere with our grandmother. Our father was a traveling salesman and we rarely saw him. On one particular night, we were all in bed and shared the same room. I decided it would be fun to try and scare my brother and sister by telling them spooky stories. 
Well, they got freaked out, and our grandmother came in upset at all the noise we were making. She could hear us downstairs. She told us to go to sleep and stop making noise. I was starting to fall asleep when I heard what sounded like muffled coughing coming from the other side of the room. Hearing the coughing, I was awake. I tried to go back to sleep and then suddenly I heard whispering. I knew that my siblings were asleep, so I was confused as to where this whispering was coming from. There was literally nobody else in the house except my brothers, sisters, and grandma. I started to understand the whispers, something like, go home. I don't know why I did this, but I got up and decided to turn on the light, and nothing was in the room with us. I looked everywhere after that. I didn't find anybody. I was extremely freaked out by this, so I went in the living room and told our grandmother that there was someone in the bedroom, and of course she didn't believe me. Ever since that incident, I have been terrified of the dark. Even today, I tend to sleep with at least one light on in the bedroom. My wife and I have been fascinated by the paranormal since we got married. We enjoyed watching paranormal shows about ghost hunting and learning about the subject. We never thought we would share a paranormal experience which also involved our teenage daughter. This experience would have to do with what might have been a doppelganger. At the time, we did not know what these things were called or anything about them at all. During the early years of our marriage, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment with our daughter. It was a summer afternoon, and I had decided to go to the gym. Normally, I would be there about an hour, give or take. I'd been gone for just over 20 minutes, according to my wife, when this happened. My wife was doing some house cleaning, vacuuming to be exact, when our daughter came home from cheerleading practice. She greeted my wife and went to her room for a couple of minutes to drop off her gym bag before returning to the living room looking for me. She asked my wife where I was. My wife told our daughter I was at the gym. My daughter asked, did he just leave? And to her surprise, my wife responded, no, he's been gone almost 30 minutes. My daughter got scared and thought maybe her mom was messing with her. Don't say that, she said. I just saw him when I went to my room in the hallway. I greeted him and he answered me back. He said, hey, and actually passed right next to me. I felt him pass next to me and he said hello to me by name. I even had to move as he passed. My daughter said I walked into our bedroom. I never came out. My wife reassured her that I was gone and had not been back. Our daughter said she never saw my face because whatever that thing was had its head down. She said it was definitely my voice and even described what I was wearing. Our apartment had a narrow hallway that led to the two bedrooms. Hers was on the left and ours on the right. Anyone wanting to exit the apartment from the bedrooms would have to walk into the living room. After I came home from the gym and heard what had happened from my wife, 
I spoke with my still shaking daughter and reassured her I had been at the gym. Till this day, my daughter, whom now is a mother herself, gets freaked out about this experience. It was years later when we learned about doppelgangers. We don't know what this was, a doppelganger or something else. Whatever it was, it never happened again. Several years ago, James Bond star Roger Moore spoke openly about his own experience with the paranormal. This is his account. Sir Roger Moore said, I was frozen. I wanted to call out and scream, but couldn't speak. I was numb, paralyzed from head to toe. I was sitting bolt upright in my bed and watching a white, ghostly figure moving towards me. It was the apparition of a man. The shape of the body was clearly defined. There was a head, body, and legs, but it was mist-like. I pulled myself together, somehow, calmed myself, and then tried to communicate with the ghost. I said softly, what do you want? Are you troubled? As I went to move from the bed, the ghost disappeared, just vanished. The second night of Sir Roger's stay, the apparition reappeared. He said, It returned at the exact same time, about 2 a.m. I was petrified. I thought, It's after me. What does it want with me? I tried to make contact once again, but to no avail. It vanished again. In the morning, the roommate asked me, Did you see the ghost last night, sir? I replied, Good heavens, how do you know about it? No, I didn't see it last night. She said, I didn't think you would. I left the hotel, but often think about the incident. I never found out what it was all about. When I went to the room on the third night, a Bible, opened on the 23rd Psalm, was beside my bed. I hadn't put the Bible there or opened it, but that night the ghost did not appear. I was in my early teens and had my own room at the time. I've been having some difficulties sleeping in my own bed for various reasons, and I remember having a very hard time this night in particular. I would sometimes come to my parents and stand at the side of the bed and whisper to wake them up, which scared them to death, and then trade beds with my father, who would stay in my bed. This was the case that night. I believe. It's hard to really remember the circumstances because it happened a few times, and I had taken the side of the bed nobody wanted to sleep on. That side of the bed was close to the wall, with a foot gap. It was hard to scoot into to get into bed, and it was darker on that side of the room for reasons unknown, so we avoided it. More than likely, I took that side because the bed was full and I didn't have a choice. 
We often saw someone standing against the wall on that side of the bed as well and had given the shadow a name as a joke to make it less sinister, so this could have played a part in what happened. I remember choking awake. I was on my back, my hands on my chest, and I was stuck in that position. My eyes were wild because the whole room was black, I mean dark as dark could get, which was odd because we lived by a streetlight and that room never got very dark at night to begin with. So it being that dark, that black was terrifying. I couldn't see anything in front of me. There was this pressure on my chest and hands that made it difficult to breathe. I remember choking for air, thinking I had blacked out or was dreaming and would wake up. Then these two great big red eyes opened right in front of my face. No pupils, no iris, just red eyes blinking down at me. I started to make out this humped-up shape of something sitting on me in the dark. It was definitely sitting on me, just looking down hatefully. I started to panic, realizing I was stuck. At this time, I'd had so many experiences that I wasn't sure if this was a dream or just another one of those experiences. And I woke up. The room was back to its usual lightness. Everything was cast in a blue night hue, and there were no red eyes. I was able to breathe again. I sat up and looked around at the bed. Then I climbed over every single person laying there and ran to my room. I think that was one of the last times I ever slept in there. I have two younger sisters, but as far as I know, they didn't seem to have the same problems. I did have a couple of other episodes of sleep paralysis and started experiencing insomnia nightly. I had a routine in high school where I would sleep a few hours, wake up at 1 a.m. naturally, write until 3 a.m., and go back to bed for a couple more hours. This all started after the old hag incident. I just stopped sleeping well after that. I-R-S. Those three letters create more fear in some people than any episode of Weird Darkness ever could. The I-R-S does not give up. Until you pay. Trust me, I know. A few years ago, Robin and I were having some major financial difficulties and we found ourselves owing over $10,000 to the I-R-S. We almost lost our house. But back then, they didn't have something that exists today. If you owe back taxes, you can call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS is offering a tax forgiveness program called Fresh Start, and it can help you pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Tax Solutions Now is accredited with the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. So if you need a fresh start when it comes to your tax burden, call Tax Solutions Now at 800 417 9743. That's 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743. Here at Weird Darkness, scares are a daily thing, but what I'm about to tell you might horrify you. Someone in your family could, right now, be playing a dangerous game of Russian roulette. 
Over 43,000 people die each year from drug overdose. That's 120 people per day, five people per hour. That's a death by overdose every 12 minutes. And alcohol abuse is even worse. 88,000 people die every year from alcohol abuse. That's 240 people per day, 10 per hour. One person dying from alcohol abuse every six minutes. Somebody close to you might be next. Before that happens, take a proactive step and learn how to get those you love away from the drugs, alcohol, and other bad influences. Learn more by calling 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. With the FMLA, that person can even take a leave of absence from their job to get the help they need and keep their job so they can return to it. 800-831-1560. That's 800-831-1560. Two men fishing in the Seneca River near Baldwinsville, New York, in June 1874, came across what appeared to be a bundle of clothes floating in the water. Closer inspection revealed that it was the body of a man, weighted so firmly that they could not drag it ashore without assistance. The feet had been tied to a 68-pound rock. Examination revealed that a second rock tied to the neck had slipped away, allowing the body to float into sight. The right side of his skull had been smashed, and the Baldwinsville medical examiner determined that the man had been murdered but after several months in the river, his features were unrecognizable. The discovery caused much excitement in the quiet farming village of Baldwinsville. No one in the area had been reported missing, and with the body so badly decomposed, it seemed unlikely ever to be identified. Gradually, though, the contents of his pockets, a tin spoon, a package of sewing needles, and a piece of calico cloth provided enough clues to determine that the dead man was Francis A. Colvin, who had boarded for a time with John Pickard and his wife. The spoon was from a set of nine he had purchased, six of which he gave to Mrs. Pickard and one he carried in his pocket to take medicine for his lungs. He had used the needles to attempt to sew an extra pocket into his coat. Mrs. Pickard completed the pocket for him and also added lapels to the coat. She gave him the calico cloth part of which he wrapped around his toes to prevent chafing. An examination of his coat revealed the pocket and the lapels, and the piece of cloth was still wrapped around his toes. A dentist who had extracted teeth from Francis Colvin was able to confirm the identification. Francis Colvin had no family in the area and no friends except the Pickards. After returning from the Civil War, he had lived almost as a hermit in a shack in the woods until the Pickards offered him room and board at their house. Around December 1873, he left their house to go to work on the farm of Daniel Lindsay and had expressed his plans to move to Syracuse for a higher-paying job, so no one was suspicious when he was no longer seen around Baldwinsville. Colvin had been a hard-working and frugal man and had amassed a nest egg of about $3,000 in cash and notes, which he was known to carry on his person. 
it was now missing. He had held a mortgage of about $350 on property owned by John Pickard, which had been transferred to a man named Payne Bigelow. When questioned, Bigelow said he had purchased the mortgage from Bishop Vader, a farmhand who also worked for Daniel Lindsay. Vader was arrested in connection with the murder of Francis Colvin. Vader professed innocence and said that a man named Dwayne Peck was responsible for the murder. Outside of jail, Daniel Lindsay's son, Owen, was also spreading the rumor that Dwayne Peck had murdered Francis Colvin. The police arrested Peck but soon determined that he had no connection to Colvin's death and let him go. Bishop Vader was a somewhat simple-minded man. Not an idiot, the district attorney would later say, but a man that has not the moral courage to stand up and say no when one that had great influence over him shall tell him what to do. After prolonged questioning, Vader revealed that the man who'd been telling him what to do was Owen Lindsay. When Vader and Colvin were both working on his father's farm, Owen told Vader to find out how much money Colvin was carrying. Suspecting nothing, Colvin told him. Owen Lindsay then formulated a simple plan to take it. He told Vader to lead Colvin into the barn the morning of December 19, 1873. As Colvin sat milking a cow, Lindsay came up behind him and hit him in the head twice with the flat end of an axe. Lindsay went through Colvin's pockets and removed a pocketbook containing cash and notes. He gave $500 to Vader and kept $1,500 for himself. They hid the body. Then, Lindsay told Vader to hire a boat. If Lindsay's father asked where Colvin was, Vader was to tell him he left for the city. He gave Vader two mortgages from the pocketbook and told him to go to Syracuse, pretend to be Colvin, and sell them. Vader decided it was easier to sell them in Baldwinsville, so sold one to Payne Bigelow. When the sun went down, they put the body in a sleigh and took it to the boat Vader had rented. They put the body in the boat and Lindsay tied the rocks to it. When they reached the deepest part of the river, they threw the body overboard. After Vader had told his story, the police examined the sleigh and found bloodstains in the floorboards. They arrested Owen Lindsay and charged both men with the murder of Francis Colvin. Though Bishop Vader and Owen Lindsay were both charged with first-degree murder, Lindsay was considered the primary defendant. They would be tried separately with Lindsay's case taken first. The prosecution spent the first part of the trial introducing testimony to prove that the body found in the river was that of Francis Colvin. When this was done, the principal witness against Lindsay would be Bishop Vader. Lindsay's attorney objected to Vader testifying as he was charged with the same crime. The judge heard arguments on both sides of this question, then ruled that Vader could not testify against his co-defendant. The prosecution then changed the charge against Bishop Vader effectively dropping the charges against him while leaving them free to charge him again later. Vader's testimony and cross-examination took more than a day and was quite damaging to Lindsay. Under oath, he told the same story that he had told the police. It also came out that Vader was left-handed and the blow to the back of Colvin's head 
had been delivered by someone who was right-handed. The state then introduced two college professors who had microscopically examined the blood found in the sleigh. Lindsay had contended that the stains had come from slaughtered pigs which had been carried in the sleigh. In new and controversial testimony, both professors concluded from the size of the corpuscles that the blood was from a human, not a pig. The defense challenged the date of the murder, introducing witnesses who claimed to have played parlor croquet with him on December 19th, had seen him at a birthday party, and had seen him slaughtering pigs four days after he was allegedly murdered. They contended that Bishop Vader alone was guilty of the murder and had falsely implicated Lindsay. The trial lasted ten days. After seven hours of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Owen Lindsay was sentenced to be hanged on March 26, 1875, but the verdict was appealed, postponing the execution for nearly a year. His attorneys challenged the validity of Bishop Vader, an accomplice in the murder, as a witness. The New York Supreme Court confirmed that the criminal courts have discretionary power in this respect and let the verdict stand. On February 11, 1876, Owen Lindsay was hanged in the courtyard of the Onondaga County Penitentiary. He was urged to confess his crime, but he maintained his innocence to the end. friend of mine and his wife bought a house in the south side of town about a decade ago and invited my wife and I to the housewarming party. My wife and I showed up and brought an ice cream cake and a stack of new dishes for their housewarming gift because during the move many of the dishes got broken. When we arrived, we put the dishes and the cake on the kitchen counter and the four of us went into the living room to watch a movie. The movie was a post-apocalyptic story and was really bleak, and about ten minutes in we heard a crash come from the kitchen. We all jumped, then ran into the kitchen and looked in, but we didn't turn on the lights, only used the light spilling into the kitchen from the outside of the living room, and we could see the cake and the dishes sitting still on the table, and concluded the noise had come from outside. We then returned to the living room and continued to watch the movie. Twenty minutes later, we heard an even louder crash that definitely came from the kitchen. We all ran into the kitchen and turned on the lights. The plates were still on the table, unbroken and in pristine condition. However, smeared into the icing of the cake were the words, I am in hell. My wife and I made an excuse and split. During the two weeks that followed that night, my friends heard constant crashing noises and cold spots were randomly appearing throughout the house. My friend managed to sell the house pretty quickly after that. Five years later, he did a search online regarding the house and found that it was owned in the 1950s by a vicious gangster. Do you have a dark tale to tell? 
Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, this month I'm asking you to help raise as much money as we can for depression and suicide prevention. You can give right now by clicking on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or you can click the link in the show notes. And as of recording this episode, we received another donation, so we're now currently at $1,700 towards our $2,000 goal. So we only have $300 that we need to bring in before the end of Wednesday. That's Halloween night. So we don't have much more to raise, but we don't have much more time to raise it either. So please give now if you're thinking about doing so. You can click on Battle the Darkness at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. Also at Weird Darkness, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, read creepy stories or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. If you do like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at darren at weirddarkness.com. If you'd like to send me something physical in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the Weird Darkness contact page. And while you're listening to the podcast right now, take a moment, leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Daniel in Sweden left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, Thanks for all the history. Love your voice and I listen to the pod on my work all day long. Thanks and keep up the good work. Best regards, signed Daniel Malmstrom from Sweden. Uh, FBSJNDHS left a review in Apple Podcasts. That's an awful name, by the way. (laughs) Uh, But uh, that person said, I love this podcast. A big fan. I binge listen. His voice and ability to intrigue you, it amazes sometimes. I'll start listening at 8 p.m., and all of a sudden the sun is coming up. LOL. Well, thank you very much, FBSJNDHS, and hopefully that's not your real name. And Big Bill Cox also left an Apple Podcast review saying, A great podcast for people who like mystery or the paranormal. I came across this podcast by accident and decided to give it a listen. Boy, I'm glad I did. As a lifelong fan of things weird and mysterious, I'm highly entertained by this podcast. Its subject matter and production values are top-notch, and Darren's narration sets the perfect mood for these strange and spooky stories. I listen to them during my long drives to and from work, and sometimes in the evenings when I get a little downtime. Keep up the good work. Well, thanks to all of you for those really nice reviews. I appreciate it. The following stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Drury Lane Theater is from the book 100 True Ghost Stories, Terrifying Hauntings from the UK and Around the World, written by Alan Toner. The Real Boogeyman is from the book Could It Be True Volume 1, Urban Legends by Cindy Parmiter. The Horror at Pemberton Mill is from the book A Pale Horse Was Death, written by Troy Taylor and Renee Cruz. The Haunting of My Grandmother's Cottage is posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. My Doppelganger is also posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. Shaken, Not Scared, Roger Moore's Experience with the Paranormal was posted at MyHauntedLife2. 
the red-eyed being that held me down was posted at my haunted life too. Tormented by a spirit in hell, posted at myhauntedlife2.com. And the Baldwinsville homicide was posted at murderbygaslight.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow, and I'd like to read a tweet that was sent to me by weirdo family member AmCat96. She said, My MyPillow came in yesterday, and I didn't think I would like it because of how it was stuffed. Oh, was I wrong. I slept like a baby and woke up and my neck didn't hurt. Made it so much harder to get out of bed. Right now, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com, promo code WEIRD.